Guys, we're in the middle of the pandemic and these are trying times. It's hard on our mental health, our mental state. And this is why I love our sponsor today, BetterHelp. They're the largest online counseling platform worldwide. They change the way people get help with facing life's challenges by providing convenient, discreet, affordable access to licensed therapists. BetterHelp makes professional counseling available anytime, anywhere, through a computer, tablet, or smartphone. It's brilliant. Sign up today. Go to betterhelp.com backslash solving healthcare and get 10% off sign up fees. Welcome to Solving Healthcare. I'm Quadro Caramante. I'm an ICU and palliative care physician here in Ottawa and the founder of Resource Optimization Network. We are on a mission to transform healthcare in Canada. I'm going to talk with physicians, nurses, administrators, patients, and their families because inefficiencies, overwork, and overcrowding affects us all. I believe it's time for a better healthcare system that's more cost-effective, dignified, and just for everyone involved. Episode 80, Mom Sadie's. <laughs> Sorry. Welcome back, everybody. Really excited to bring to you Dr. Mon- Monica Gandhi. She is amazing. I, I think you guys are going to really enjoy this episode. The reason we tracked her down was when we're seeing our COVID patients in the ICU, we've been seeing a trend that they're becoming, they're presenting less sick. And one of the theories on this is, because of masking, people getting exposed to less viral load. And I heard Monica on another podcast, uh, it was Z-Dog's podcast, and explaining this, just talking about the evidence. And I, I was like, we got to get her on the show. We got we to gotta dance for real. And so got her on the show. She's incredible. She's got a, she's a professor at UCSF. She's got her MPH, Master of Public Health, as well. She is heavily involved in, HIV research and and took a deep dive a bit into this COVID landscape and this conversation we we not only talk about masking we talk about the the situation in the U.S. with them actually a lot of places not opening up schools yet we're talking about level of risk that people are could live with and how that affects relationships and and connection the the need to connect during these crazy times and so. Yeah, I think you will fully enjoy this episode. So without further delay, yo, Dr. Monica Gandhi. Quadcast Nation, I am so excited to bring Dr. Monica Gandhi on the show. I just feel like we are siblings from another mother, whatever the expression (laughs) is. I heard you on Z-Dog's podcast and I heard you on two episodes. And every time you were throwing down, I was like mouth open speaking truth, dropping knowledge. It was crazy. (laughs) So I got to tell you, Monica, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me on. I love it. I love it. So I think we'll start with masking. You know, like one of the things that we're seeing, at least locally in the ICU is people are coming in less sick. And one of the theories that we have been throwing around, and I don't know if there's much background to support this, was everyone's masking. Everyone's distancing and maybe that viral load element or lower viral load is having an implication on how people are presenting. But even take us a step back, like where you think the evidence is pro-masking, like are you in general, how about this, are you pro-masking? So I am pro-masking, but I'm pro-masking mainly because I think there's enough evidence for transmission and then reducing severity of disease, which we'll get into 
And I don't think that lockdown we should ever do again. Meaning we had to do it at the beginning. We didn't know what was going on. Was it surfaces? Was it like radioactive? Was it like a movie? What was going on that it was spreading this fast? And essentially, I think the explanation is really clear now. Like you can shed at high rates from your nose and mouth this virus, even when you feel well which actually isn't true of influenza because um, you feel sick when you're shedding it. Mm -hmm. And so when you cover up that mouth and nose, then you're not going to give it to other people. And then we can talk about the impact for you. So yes, I am pro-masking, but I'm also pro-masking because I want society to be more open than it is now. Because I think that we can't wait. The impact is just too severe. And so we have to think of ways to mitigate the impact of COVID and still be open. I mean, this is October 26th. So you're out in the Bay Area, correct? Yes. Yeah. So what's life like in the Bay Area currently? So someone said something funny to me yesterday where she said, all those people that are really sad that things have to close again, I wouldn't know what that felt like because we've barely opened. So essentially we became on March 15th, the first municipality in in the country to close down, to shelter in place. And then we have been so slow in reopening. So schools are not open. What? I didn't know schools weren't open. No, they're not open. Oh, that's ghetto. Whoa. But in fact, the San Francisco Unified School District just said maybe January. So, and our rates are so low in the city of San Francisco of COVID-19. Our rates are low. Our masking compliance is like 90%. We've had very few deaths. The mortality from this disease has been like in Japan, really, really low. But what Japan did is they masked up and they opened. They are on their public transportation. They are on the street. They are going to work. They are going to school. And they have had such low mortality rates. But they have probably 100% compliance to masking, like literally 110 if you could make it higher than 100. And because of that, I think that they've managed to not destroy their country. So I do believe in masking, but I think it has to be accompanied by opening. If you're going to stay in your house, you don't have to mask. Just stay in your house and, you know, don't leave. But Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, you, you, I didn't realize <laughs> schools weren't open. Like, I, I guess I heard Z-Dog talking about how, like, schools need to open and whatever. But, like, holy crap. Like, that's serious. I think it is. In this country, we have not put children first. We just have not. So other countries have somehow figured out that of all the impacts of shutdown that you can have on your society, it's shutting down the schools that's the most dastardly because you have working people that have to leave. You have children losing out on their learning, but we have not made it a commitment. And why? Because Trump said to open schools and people don't like Trump. So then we are going to oppose Trump. It's been a political phenomenon, I think, why we have an open schools. And yes, we have not opened schools in San Francisco. Wow. No, I guess I took that for granted just because up north, we're almost exclusively like everywhere's open schools. It's just, uh, you know how many people want to come to your country? (laughs) (laughs) I know you can't let us all in, but um, yeah. so that's true of Europe. That's true of Asia. Um, That's true of many places, even as they're closing Europe down or closing bars and restaurants and they're restricting large crowds. They're not touching the schools because schools are important fundamentally important. In the entire country of the U.S., there are certain states, usually along political lines, that the schools are open. California being along a certain political line, their schools are not open. They are allowed to open. They're starting to open. The private schools are valiantly trying to do it. The public schools, they've pretty much said maybe January, maybe later. You know what's killer too? Like, number one, I know we're on the same side of the fence with the implications for the kids. Like, 
the socialization, their education, like even, you know, in lockdown, we saw increasing child abuse, domestic abuse, all these things. Depression for the children, anxiety. Exactly. All that stuff is mounting. But then the worst part is who does this affect the worst? It's the hardest hit people. Yeah. Low socioeconomic class, marginalized, racialized, schools of break, you know, and they can't afford these private schools. Oh my God. That's exactly right. This entire actually COVID response, in my opinion, especially in the United States, has been an assault on the poor because it's not like we closed, you know, grocery stores or food delivery or takeout or the things that people work in. We've not closed hospitals or clinics. There are many things that are open. So um, brown and black people usually do those jobs. So they've been more disproportionately affected. And then on top of it, school is a place where you get food and where you're allowed to work because your children are at school. Mm. So we've also closed schools. So the assault has been ongoing and massive. And why? Because I think I understand people are scared of COVID. I understand we have a new infectious disease in the world. I understand people die of COVID. It is terrible. But it has been a single-minded focus on one infection and one infection only without a focus on education, on all the ills of society, on social determinants of health and systemic racism, on depression and mental health effects. We are not being balanced in our approach. And the United States, our imbalance in our approach is the left is fighting Trump and they want Trump out. So they're so upset that they will go all the way the other way. And anything that Trump says, they'll say the opposite. So Open schools, Trump, we will keep schools closed. It is a politicized response. It is pure and simple. It is is not scientific. This is so, once again, this is an opinion from up north. Like we we see what's going on down south. Four years ago, we thought y'all lost your minds. Like people, I'm pretty sure we were like, we were crying. It did. It did. This country lost its mind. Like what? And I think I shouldn't generalize too much, but the amount of politicization is impressive. Like the fact that you would be willing to sacrifice kids' education for power, essentially, and kids' well-being is is hard to hear. It is very hard to hear, and it's very hard to live with, and it's very hard to live here. And if you could, like, withdraw your border from us, like, I bet you'd want to, like, create some sort of, like, Magellan, <laughs> like, I don't know, like, some sort of Panama Canal, and let's just separate the land masses. But it has been uh, really hard to live in this country during this time because, um, absolutely, Trump has not managed this well. We haven't had an organized federal response. All of that is true. However, our anger and our desire to have Trump out means that we will make everything dark. You know why your kids aren't in school? It's because of Trump. Um, but there are ways with mitigation strategies to open up schools. They are with four simple things, masks, social distancing in the school, ventilation, and in the case of schools, periodic testing. And there are ways to do it. doesn't take actually a lot of space or massive things to change. There are ways to do it. Many schools have done it around the world. And we are not doing it because it is a lash out. It is a politicization. It is, we are going to be in the fear, doom and gloom camp so that luckily that will lead to Trump's downfall. And then we can start like thinking about science and so forth. So it's a major politicized response on both ends. And I cannot blame just one side for the mess that has been created on the COVID response in the United States. Wow. 
So yeah, Monica, you you mentioned how the response has been poor because the, the numbers are staggering. To be honest with you, when you look at how many people in the states have died from COVID, like it actually is quite baffling. You know, you you saw obviously the New York situation, which is obviously they were hardest hit. They were early, you know, so you could explain some of those concerns. But what is actually happening? Like, you know what I mean? Like, I don't know. Is it like at the ground level, are they getting adequate care? Because I know we're universal health care up north. We all get the same level of care. Like, is it health quality? Is it the fact that it's been overrun? Like, is there a clear reason in your mind why the death tolls were so high? I think it's multifactorial and I think it's all terribly embarrassing to explain. So one is that testing at the beginning was not adequate. Okay. So then what happened is even when testing became adequate or there are more testing available, we never totally shut down and stay shut down until things were low enough to open up safely. Mm -hmm. We shut down partially Then we got tired of it. Then the president got mad. And then we opened in various places based on political lines. A good place to explain what could have happened in the United States is California, because California has 40 million people. It is a large state. It's like a state that's the size of countries. And the state of California over the last two months has done extremely well, because what happened is they also responded to the pressure to reopen. They reopened. There were lots of surge of cases. They got scared. And there was a fundamentally a state level from the top organized response. The governor uh, Newsom put into play like different tiers where you were with your opening plans based on your community prevalence. He mandated masking. He mandated social distancing, hand hygiene, ventilation when possible, isolation and quarantine, contact tracing. And even though the rest of the country has a lot of surge in cases right now, California remains doing extremely well because what happened is from the top, statewide organized response got enacted and things went well. Same in New York. You're right that New York was terrible what happened at the beginning, but it was overrun. It was such a population dense place. And before even people knew it were happening and there was before the CDC had even put out masking guidelines, things were just a mess and it was terrible what happened. But now they do have statewide leadership and things are going well in California and New York. So look at the two most populous states and say, we do know how to do things like other countries have done, like Canada. It's just that the rest of the country is 50 fiefdoms because there are 50 states. And then each local health department decides differently. And so it's really how we run medicine that has been such a mess. If we had a national healthcare system, if we had a federal response, if we had the ability to say, hey, everyone has to wear masks, there's actually going to be a national mask mandate. Apparently, the way the federal government works is it would take like a law to say that we could have a national mass mandate. So instead, every county puts it in place. And when people are compliant, like San Francisco and the Bay Area, we're doing great. But places all over the country aren't masking because the president takes off his mask and he actually says this is stupid. And he mocks his fellow candidate for wearing a mask and calls his mask excessively large. And it is just... (laughs) amazingly destructive to have the CDC cleanly say mask, April 3rd, mask. We're going to say it again. July 14th, CDC director says this is the most important thing we could do. Then on September 16th, Robert Redfield said to Senate, 
I would actually literally think the mask is the thing that would even be better than a vaccine, that if you just wore the mask. And then every time that happens, it gets undercut by the president. So why do we have a poor response? Because we have a political, messy, terrible, non-federally regulated response. And it's exactly what you just said. You have a national healthcare system our very like system that is at least got 20 million American insurance care, which is Obamacare, the very fabric of it is constantly being threatened by this administration. So it's where politics meets science. And someone said this to me recently, when politics meets science, politics always wins. Mm. And that's what happened in the United States. Wow. Thanks for summarizing that so eloquently. But when you take a step back and a bird's eye view and think about how many lives have been impacted through that, it's just, I don't know, it's, it's hard. It's stunning. Like the number of PhD dissertations that are going to be written on this time in American history to say, I mean, someone said something to me that was very interesting. They said when President Trump got elected, they said, I was scared that he was going to blow up the country with a nuclear bomb, but he actually blew it up with a virus. And so if you have a terrible disaster that overcomes the world, which is a new pandemic, you have to have an organized federal response where people say the same things. And when people say different things like the CDC director and the NIH director and the NAAID director and the president, understandably, people get wildly confused. And this country is wildly confused. I mean, even when it came to masking, this was an interesting scenario where that came full circle, right? Like WHO was saying, like, not necessary, then changing their minds. And then in terms of cloth masking being controversial. And I must say, like, from our perspective, I remember reading, I think, Atul Gawande's put out this article in... Yes, New Yorker piece. In the New Yorker, yeah. Yes. We circulated that in our hospital. We're like, you know what, man? Let's mask. Totally. And like, it changed the boogie as well. You know what I mean? <laughs> That's exactly what happened, though. Like, it was his article because he talked to scientists in Hong Kong. He's like, how did you guys stop all getting sick? Yes. From uh, COVID because, God forbid, so sorry, there were healthcare workers who died from COVID in Asia. And also, of course, at the beginning of the pandemic in New York and our country and other places. But he said, what did you do? And they said, the main thing that we did is we changed from masking with certain procedures in the surgeons. We just all mask all the time. He wrote that article in The New Yorker. And all the hospitals very quietly around Canada and around the United States and everywhere. March 22nd, I remember the day we got the communication. We're all going to universally mask. We have all been going to work since March 1st. None of us has like not missed work, but we've all been doing this. We've been wearing that mask and we have had lower rates of healthcare worker illness. And so that works. And that's why I think it works. And that's why I think we could open other places of society with that simple intervention. 100%. Yeah. So the other part, just if we could jump on this, Monica, about the evidence for it, because full disclosure, I haven't read any of these like studies to say pro or against masking. Most of the arguments that I've heard is just that it's common sense, you know, like let's get behind it. And I was even a little bit skeptical here in Canada because we introduced it in, we'll say in the summer when there was like minimal cases around. And I was always a bit anxious about how people were masking handling a mask like you go to walmart or wherever costco these cats are wearing it on their chin <laughs> they're doing all these funky stuff and then manipulating their <laughs> mouth so much i'm like do we actually know this will be safe for them but 
I was slowly converted, as you mentioned, like it, it's a way that we could have integrated into society quicker. But yeah, in terms of evidence, what have you come across? Yeah, so that's a fantastic question because the evidence actually has not been necessarily to the most rigorous standards. And so you can actually always pull apart evidence. But I will say that accumulatively, I think we're at a point now that we have enough. But I will tell you what I mean by that. So at the beginning, you know, like if you look back at human studies, we don't have studies from 1918. They actually masked in 1918 with the worldwide influenza pandemic. We all have pictures of, you know, people at football games and stuff and they're wearing masks. And we have like treatises that people wear masks. But there weren't like good epidemiologic studies. I mean, you didn't actually, if you if you published in 1918, you hand drew your own graph. So like, I love looking at papers from that time, but we didn't actually have great papers, right? So, so then what happens with this pandemic is that everyone gets in the mix. So physical scientists, engineers, um, people who culture viruses from surfaces, people who culture viruses from masks, and like thousands of papers are put out. I mean, if you go to PubMed and say COVID-19 and masks, 2,000 papers on this, but some of them are just messes because they're like, hey, I can culture a virus from a mask. That means masks don't work. I can't spray SARS-CoV-2 into someone's face. That would be really unethical. But if I take this one animal and I outfit them with a mask and I spray them, this works. And this, there's a lot of confusing evidence, right? So to put it really cleanly, I think at this point, we have some good studies. So I'm going to forget for a moment the physical science and engineering studies, because depending on how you do it and how hard you spray at your like a mannequin outfitted with a mask and how hard you spray, whether they go out or in, there's a lot of conflicting data. So I'm going to forget the physical sciences and engineering papers for a minute. I really think let's put those aside. So instead... Let's look at virologic, epidemiologic, and ecologic evidence for masking. And I'll tell you the best studies in them. Okay, so let's start with epidemiologic. There's actually just like four. There's really four good studies that show that masks work. And I cite them all the time. One is the Boston Healthcare System in JAMA on July 14th published exactly what you just said, that as soon as they put universal masking in the healthcare system right after Atulu Gawanda wrote that article because he's in Boston. So the minute he wrote that article, they all put the Boston healthcare system into masks. You could see SARS-CoV-2 go up. It was a July 14th JAMA article before that. And as soon as masks went down, SARS-CoV-2 infections among healthcare workers went down. Very simple, nice epi analysis. Second paper was a paper in the CDC, MMWR, that showed in Arizona, they were surging over the summer. They put in mask mandates, avoiding large crowds, and they closed bars and restaurants. And they went from 151% surge to 75% down. So masks are among those. We don't know all of the factors that went into play. It's as good as it gets. And then two other papers that I like that are modeling papers. One is also a paper from the CDC that healthcare workers have been exposed to SARS-CoV-2 a lot more than we think if we do antibodies. Um, but we had a lot of asymptomatic infection. And then fourth is a very nice modeling paper that when they put in mask mandates, transmission went down. So I think there's some good epi evidence, but it's not going to convince everyone, right? Because they're going to say two things. Couldn't we do a randomized controlled trial where you put human beings in masks and spray SARS-CoV-2 in their face? You can't do that. It's unethical. They could get really sick. So we can't do that. Then they'll say, okay, can't we do a human randomized trial where you randomize half the population to masks and half not? 
Well, they did that in Denmark. They actually got approval. They got IRB approval for this study. They randomized half the people to wearing masks and half not, but they haven't managed to get it published yet. And the authors are not telling us the findings. They just say that they've been shopping it around. They haven't gotten it published. But likely what happened is that um, it's possibly true that the people who weren't supposed to wear masks were still wearing masks because the World Health Organization, as you said, on June 6th, after lots of confusion, has told the world to wear cloth masks to prevent SARS-CoV-2 transmission. So we can't have the perfect data. And so it ends up being like evolution, like you keep on getting more and more observational evidence, and then you finally just decide, you know what, we have amassed enough evidence that I think that is true, based on all the evidence, but it's not a fact. I can't put it in the realm of fact, because I can't do a randomized experimental study, it would be unethical. And I think we have enough observational evidence that I believe it's true that masks work to decrease both transmission and severity of disease. Yeah. And put it this way, has there been anything to imply that it's harmful? No. See, that's the other thing is that that is actually the perfect question, because if it was harmful and actually Z-Dog did say this in his interview, he said, well, okay, so what's the worst that happens? Like we all kind of wore this cloth on our face and we came out of this pandemic, like what could be harmful? There is actually no evidence that shows harm. There has been questions raised by people. Could it restrict your pulmonary critical care doctor? So you would know way more than I, but there were questions that were raised about, could it make you retain carbon dioxide or could it restrict your oxygen? And since oxygen and carbon dioxide are such tiny, tiny molecules, they can easily go through mass. So those studies have actually been done and the answer is no. And you can comment if there's any restriction on oxygenation or retaining of carbon dioxide. No, no. No. So that was the only concern that has been raised. In terms of other harm, there have been a very kind of conservative group that's raised the question, well, could it be that we're giving people too much security by having them be out with masks? And combined with social distancing, hand hygiene and ventilation and all the other things we do, I don't think it gives the people too much confidence. I actually think of anything people are, um, to be honest, there's a lot of fear about COVID-19, but anything that you can give people that kind of gives them control over their own destiny, I think it's really empowering to think that you can wear a mask and you can be out and you can go do your shopping or see your friends or see your family or see your mother. To be honest, I think it's very empowering. So I don't see the argument that it's disempowering to wear masks. That was one of my concerns too, to be honest with you, is that People will use the mask as a way of now I could be really close to grandma, you know, give her a hug and stuff. And like in real life, it's not what I'm seeing. And honestly, when you have something that's showing potentially a lot of upside with minimal downside or no clear downside, even that's a W that's a win. You got to take that and embrace that bad boy. <laughs> it's a win. Yeah, yeah it's a win. <laughs> Let me ask too, because a colleague of mine asked the other day too, I went out on a limb a bit on the media saying how I felt that people are presenting less sick than they had been before. And part of my theory was that, you know, it's due to less viral load from the measures we just talked about, specifically masking. Is there anything to support that? Not necessarily like COVID, but in terms of even any other respiratory virus to support like less viral load equals less severity of illness? Yes, there is evidence to support this theory that, or this hypothesis, I guess, that less viral dose you get in. And I say dose instead of load, because I think that load is what you produce. And I think the dose is what you get in. But there is evidence. Okay, so let's look at like other respiratory viruses, because that's a really good question. 
In other respiratory viruses, there's actually a lot of evidence. A lot of it's in animal models where, you know, the more dose you give an animal, the more sick they get. Um, this has been propounded since 1938. There's this really old study in 1938 where they drew that graph. <laughs> and um, these animals, um, they, they define something called the lethal dose 50 of a virus. What's the dose at which 50% of animals die? And they have been a lot of animal experimentation on this question. But then people will say, okay, what about humans? And in humans, I really looked at the literature on this. It seems like it's most been shown with influenza because there have been a lot of challenge vaccine trials with influenza. So there's been at least three where they give people influenza, A, and they see how sick they get. Um, and they want to give them just enough to do these challenge trials. And so there's three papers, two in CID and one in a, in a virology journal, where the less influenza A you give people, the less sick they get, and the more you give them, the more sick they get. So that kind of dose-response relationship. And then people will say, okay, well, what about with SARS-CoV-2, COVID? And I will say the virologic evidence, there's never been a study where you spray, you know, more or less in humans' faces, but there have been two animal studies, one in hamsters and one in ferrets. And the more dose of the virus you give these animals, the more sick they get. And then there was even a study where they, like, they didn't put little masks on the hamsters, but they put them in cages where they were simulating like little tiny masks. And not only did the hamsters get less sick if they were masked, they were also less likely to get it. But if they got it, they got less sick with COVID-19. So that's the virologic evidence. Then the second line would be, okay, well, what have we been seeing epidemiologically? And I think your observations are true, that we have also been seeing really low mortality rates once we started putting these things into play. And I think the best place that I like to look at is these cruise ships. Like there was once cruise ship outbreak at the beginning, it was about 40% of people didn't get sick. And then when there was another cruise ship outbreak with an Argentinian cruise ship, they gave everyone masks and then 80% of people didn't get sick. And then in the meat processing plants here, we saw a lot of illness at the beginning when then we started putting people in masks and then there's been a lot less illness. And then just, I think importantly, we've been seeing the severity of illness go down in countries that mask. So for example, this is a very fascinating thing that I just learned about Japan. Over the summer, Tokyo went from 5.6 seroprevalence rate to COVID-19 to 48.8% in Tokyo. They have been exposed to COVID-19. They have been out, they have been with their masks, and they have had hardly any hospitalizations or deaths because the severity of disease has been so low in a country that has been so compliant with masking. So it's all circumstantial. The virologic evidence that I told you is the best that we can do with influenza. There's also a study with measles and dengue that the more virus you give, the more sick people get. But all you can do is just keep on putting together these ideas, making observations in what we're seeing now, being doctors in the hospital. What are we seeing? And in the city of San Francisco, we have had 130 deaths about total from COVID-19 in a very complicated and um, very uh, populous city. And we've had 468 overdose deaths during the same period. So we can see what's going on in a place that's masking. We're doing great with COVID-19, but we're doing really poorly with our other health stuff as we're staying closed. Wow. There's so much here. I don't, don't let me forget about the <laughs> overdoses. Okay, but, um, it's terrible, yeah. I'm a little bit blown at the Tokyo study. That's crazy. I literally looked it up yesterday. I couldn't believe it because I was putting together this talk for Johns Hopkins that I'm doing tomorrow, their ID grand rounds, on this very question that you ask. Like, does viral inoculum matter? 
or as one of my co-authors like to say, does size matter? And um, we're trying to put together all the evidence and I'll actually send you the slides that we just put together. But as I was looking, I was looking at these like three layers of evidence, right? The virologic I told you about, the outbreak evidence that in outbreaks where we mask, we have less severe disease. And then that third layer of evidence is called ecologic evidence, country level evidence. And I feel like we haven't paid enough attention to what was going on in Asia. So I was really looking at Japan. They have been open since April. They all model mask wearing. They masked before this because of SARS. When the Tokyo mayor came out and said mask, he didn't say it like, hey, I'm not going to do this. I don't believe in this. He's like wearing a mask. He pulls it down. And he says, all of you mask. And then he pulled it up. Um, and um, they mask. I mean, like literally, I talked to a Japanese reporter last week and I said, what's your compliance rate? He goes, 100%. And then the study that was just, um, it's out of preprint actually, but it was just, I'll send you the study, but it was just um, put on this preprint. They looked at the Tokyo population from May to August and totally open with masks, right? Like no one's, very few people are, they're not doing large crowds, but they have inside restaurants. They have, you know, settings where they put all the safety mitigation places and everyone on public transportation is masking, but they're in their offices, they're on the street, they're next to each other, they're wearing those masks. And this study showed that from May to August, the seroprevalence of being exposed to COVID-19 was 4.8% in May, and it was something like 52% by the end of the summer. So it was like, they have been exposed to COVID-19. It's not like it's not going around in, in this world. It's really transmissible. It is still there. They are not a sealed off country like New Zealand or Australia, where they've gotten their rates so low. But they have used this mitigation strategy without controversy and I think it's very interesting because they have not had the mortality, especially that the U.S. has had. I mean, you also in Canada have done very well, but the U.S. has been terrible in terms of our case fatality rate. And it's, it's horrifying because, like you said, we do have health care. And I do think when they get to the hospital, people get good health care. By the time you get to the hospital, you would know this better than anyone. You're an ICU doctor. You can be very sick. I guess it. Part of why I'm, there's a lot of reasons why my mind is blown right now, but <laughs> the the other part too is just like let's learn from this shit. You know what yeah, I'm saying? Can- like like learn from it. You tell me. Are you allowed to say that word on a podcast? It's my, it's my house. Yeah, you know, I'm throwing down, kids. <laughs> Dr. K's grown ass. He's throwing down now. Oh, gloves are off. I gotta tell you. Well, I'll speak maybe offline, but I'm just there's so much BS happening right now that I'm just just like I'm. Oh. They did it right from the beginning. So Vietnam, Thailand, Singapore, Hong Kong, Japan, places in China. I mean, it is not like New Zealand and Australia, which I think is a very interesting example. We can't seal off in the same way that islands can. And that's also one extreme, right? Like they can really, you know, not let people in and so forth. Which has negative consequences, which we're about to talk about. There are major consequences there of completely sealing off. But if you look at these Asian countries that have massively done things right and why, because they just didn't fight public health principles that they put into play during SARS in 2003. And not only did they not fight it, but they really trust, I think, their public health officials and their government. So that trust led to, well, of course, I'm going to wear a mask. And then there's maybe more civic duty mindedness. Um, There's so many reasons why their compliance is so good, but they have blown my mind. I can't believe that every day the New York Times doesn't have an article on Japan or Singapore, or South Korea, or uh, Thailand, or Vietnam. Like, just keep on talking about them so that we can learn from them. Yeah, and maybe this might be my own biases coming through, but they're also, sounds like they're considering 
other aspects of public health, like not just let's kibosh the virus or whatever. Like I always find it hard to determine at least locally what our goals are from public health, but the other parts of public health, you know, is mental health, it's vaccinations, it's all these other aspects that are being on constant decline, you know, in our country as well. And when I hear you saying, did you say 138 or so? Yeah. So at the same period, we've had about 136 deaths from COVID-19 in all of San Francisco. And during the same period, we had 468 excess overdose deaths. Wow. So what I mean is that you are right, that a single-minded attention to now one new cause of death, one thing that we must pay attention to, of course, SARS-CoV-2, we must pay attention to, but a single-minded attention to that has led to neglect of childhood vaccination, of HIV, of sexually transmitted diseases, of hepatitis C, of hepatitis B, of mental illness, of depression, of relapses, of addiction, of loneliness. The list goes on and on, right? And so it is important that if we could have quashed it somehow in March, that would have been great. We didn't quash it. Partially, it's not just because we're terrible and we're all terrible public health people partially because it's a really transmissible virus and it is going to be with us for a while. And thus, then you take a step back and you start modulating your responses and you're like, okay, how can I mitigate the impact from this illness and also continue as public health officials and as government officials and as economists and think about everything else that's going on and also work on those problems. And that single-mindedness and not paying attention to the other aspects of societal ills is what I've been confused about with our response. Asia, they have thought about other aspects like, well, you know what, we're going to open restaurants because we know how to keep people safe. We've brought in ventilation, we've social distanced, they wear masks until they're eating. We keep people with a small table. So they, they did know everything what to do. Hong Kong did this too, and Hong Kong's a very popular city, of course. Um, We know how to do that. And we're also going to think about other aspects of society, like our schools and our children being in school. So it is more of a holistic approach, because if we don't take start taking a holistic approach nine months and counting into this pandemic, the question is, how long will it take to unravel all this damage that's been created by a single minded approach? And once again, our numbers are quite different from the states. And I think part of the issue is trying to decide or evaluate risk. You know, like I think the way we see a lot of people behave is 30 year old, even non-diabetic, metabolically sound people are worried that, you know, they'll pass from this. And of course, there's going to be exceptions as always is or whatever. But when you actually look at what the risks are, how do I put this? Do they respond well to a response? Like, you know, when we shut down the economy, we shut down all, all aspects of what it means to be a community. I don't know. I find it this part really challenging to, that people, based on what they see on the media, what they, they see on their Twitter, we're struggling. We're about to die from COVID. Um, I think this is the hardest part is that what you're saying is that understandably, it was scary at the beginning because we just didn't know what was going on. And then when we realized so much about the virus and how to protect ourselves and how to protect society, we stayed with the fear messaging. Um, And why? Well, I know why we stayed with the fear messaging in this country. It was more politically driven, I think. And then it also hit people where we fundamentally hurt, right, which is the point of all philosophy and all of religion, which is our fundamental fear of death. And so our fundamental, profound 
uneasiness with our 100% mortality rate that we will all die, that is what we've had to confront as a planet. And everyone has settled out, whether they've settled yet or not, to a different place. Like there have been people who are like, I take risks every day by driving to the store. I'm not going to prevent this from seeing my family member who I need to see. And I'm going to do all the safety precautions. I'm going to see them because I'm, they're dying of loneliness. They're, everyone's making these equations, these multiple negotiations and equations in your head. But your personal comfort with death and the concept with death, which is, by the way, the entire point of all human existence is to somehow, in a way, figure out our relationship without the inevitable. Um, I think that has played into everyone's responses to it. So we all have biases that we're bringing to our dialogues. When I talk as an infectious disease doctor, but also someone who's thought about death and who lost my husband to cancer, those two things put together nuance my biases and I have a bias. I am not, the worst has happened to me. Um, I lost my husband to death and um, and that influences my messaging. Someone who's maybe not confronted or understood or felt their spiritual connection with the inevitable of death may be advising differently with the same set of science, scientific studies in front of them. We're all bringing our biases to our discussions and no one's more science-minded actually. We're all bringing our biases, even the scientists. And so I think that when we decide on our level of fear, as we get used to this, we will get used to this just like we got used to cars and how scary cars were and seatbelts and, and that there were ways to mitigate the risks in cars, but it will take a while. Monica, I just want to, uh, I don't know when your husband passed, but I just want to, what was his name? <clears throat> his name was um, Rakesh Mishra and he was the love of my life and he died on November 29th, 2019. So it was pretty recently. And oh my God, this <clears throat> so not is it almost oh. coming on a year and we have a 12 and a 10 year old boy, uh, sons and uh believe me there was first is death then a pandemic then no one comes and sees uh, us and uh <laughs> there's been a lot to confront during this time but i will say oh it, it has given me a view of this that maybe is unique that um i guess i would say that the reason i believe in masking um is it gives me a sense of control over my own destiny unlike many diseases where you have no control like cancer over your own destiny. And um, I just want people to feel less anxious if they could about this virus. Um, but overall, all of us having to confront our own relationship with mortality is something we all have to do. I'm going to say this, Monica, and it might not be totally appropriate, but your perspective is like, it comes from like, if anything, we should be listening to your perspective more. You've seen the worst. You've experienced something that, you, you know, we would never want of anyone, a young family, young man, father, probably, you know, son, uh, yes, sibling, yes. like Only all son. these things. And um, because you have that perspective on how fragile life is and the perspective of do we need to be worried about how much we need to worry about the parts of life. And as a specialist, as someone that's experienced death in a horrible way, like your perspective matters. And it's one that comes with a lot of street cred. And uh, Well, thank you for saying that, because then I would say, if you're going to take my perspective at all, and believe me, please, please be around each other and see each other and love each other and be kind to each other and think of ways to make people feel more, more connected than, rather than more isolated during this. 
Yes. Yes. And so I'm a palliative care doctor when I'm not here too. And what I've seen, what we've all seen in terms of people not having that connection and, you know, dying by themselves. And when it comes to being human, it is the connection. This is what matters. This is what, what makes us. It, this is what matters. This is actually the human condition. And this is why we are so lost right now. Because one of our public health commentaries is stay away from each other. Yeah. This is a terrible thing to say to humans when the human condition is about connection and love and growing closer. And so if there are ways to do that safely, please do it. Go see your grandmother. Go see your mother. Wear a mask, hand hygiene, ventilation, but go see them, please. Because you're right. It is, it is what matters. And you're right. People are dying alone right now. And I watched my husband die with all of us around him. He had people who could not even leave. The, I could not even be out of the room as, as he was dying. I could not be away from his body. And so, um, yes, people need people around them. So let's maybe take this message, stop yelling at each other, even about wearing a mask, by the way, and to have some sympathy for the human condition, which is it means that we have to be around each other and we have to show each other love. Yes. I mean, I think this is what and you alluded to this too, but the beauty of the masking message is it's a way that we can still achieve this. Yes. You know, it's a way that we can still achieve that connection. And a scientist in the UK said, think of the mask as taking your front door, shrinking it, turning it horizontal and putting it on your face. And then you can go outside the front door. <laughs> oh my God. But um, maybe that's what drives our message too. Like we've been just preaching so hard about trying to have a balanced approach. And it's so funny too, the people that are living it, like the people that are living COVID, like seeing it firsthand, yeah. seeing it being frontline, the perspective is often quite different than the public persona of you know, the loud ones that are preaching on social media. And I actually you think you're I mean? so, it's different being an MD and a public health person or an epidemiologist than being a PhD. I have like really seen the difference because I think if you're seeing patients, you're seeing both the effect of COVID when they get sick from COVID, but you're also seeing the effect of what's going on right now in terms of loneliness on your outpatients and ICHIV patients. And so I think being an MD may give you a little bit more of a balanced perspective on how to manage. Absolutely. And because I, I have yet to see too many frontline, like truly frontline people that aren't giving balanced perspectives yes. to all this stuff. You yes. know what I mean? That, the other thing that reminds me of the risk in trying to live together is having these conversations with friends that have different risk evaluations or uh, risk tolerance. I, I, this has been a very challenging thing to navigate, at least in our circles. Like if you got a family member or a friend that is like very risk averse and like full disclosure to people, like I'm less risk averse, like wherever you are on the spectrum, I don't know what scale to use. Well, this is the scale. We, we, my friends and I thought of an idea. It's called strata of fear. So you're either in a low strata of fear or a high strata of fear, and people should probably hang out in their strata because you'll have too many arguments if you don't <laughs> like you. <laughs> so, so, and we even have like, we even looked up like the different stratospheres and like, there's a troposphere if you're like the lowest stratosphere. And then there's like, if you're really scared, then you should hang out on zoom. Like it really, it's possible that we need to start sorting ourselves by this characteristic just for this time, because it will lead to unpleasantries between people if they're in different strata. 
like I'll get hurt that someone's too scared and they'll get hurt that I'm not scared enough. And maybe we have to just stay in our strata for a while. I mean, there's something to be said about this because I just find even my emotional well-being, like I get, sometimes I get, you get a little bit testy. You get a little bit, oh, like you get a little bit more edgy when, when you're having these discussions on stratosphere. Like I had, a, <laughs> you know, when I had a, someone confronted me, I, I went to go pick up uh, my kids at school and which any U.S. people, y'all should be going to school. Oh, man, please don't rub it in. My child is like upstairs right now on a call and he's dead. Go ahead. That's crazy. <laughs> we go pick up the kids and actually you might judge me for this, but it's okay. But we're outside. There's lots of room and I ain't, I ain't wearing a mask. Yeah, because uh, you're outside, outside and it's ventilated. That's yeah. fine with me. Yeah. yeah. And they're starting to get on, get on why are you wearing a mask? I'm like, no, I'm outside, well ventilated, all this stuff. But man, did that ever get me twisted? <laughs> I, I was like, for the next two hours, I come home, go to my wife, mom, I go, mommy, they challenge me on being a mess. And I'm like, I just go off on a rant, take off my shirt. It got weird. I'm like, why are you taking off your shirt? That's what I do. Um, but uh, yeah, no, it I was, agree. Uh, it hurts ugh. people's feelings when you say stuff to them like, you're not being good enough. You're not being safe enough. These are very judgmental terms. It hurts people's feelings. It hurts people's feelings when you flinch away from them. The very act of flinching is a stigmatizing act, right? And so we are doing really ill to our children by putting this degree of fear into this equation, I think, because we have so much safety principles we know. And so, yes, when you have the ventilation and the outside, then that's when the mask can come off. Like, that's the entire point. And you're right. That's why I think unless you have to go to the store where you should just be like in your strata, you know, the scariest strata. If you're hanging out with your friends, you got to stay with the friends that are in the strata. And the other friends say, hey, man, I'll see you in a year. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, that's just gold right there. It's so true. <laughs> Monica. Oh, my gosh. I wish I could hug you. I, I, I know. Fear. I would like I, I know, totally I, I, you if I, were there. I know, I know. I give you one, <laughs> my classic bear hug. I gotta say, I fundamentally enjoyed this conversation. I feel like we're kindred spirits, whatever that means. We I don't are. actually totally know what that means. We are. <laughs> it has to do with reincarnation, but I'll. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I was once a mountain cat. Um, but um, honestly, this is just such a refreshing conversation. And to have like an authentic one in that human connection in our house, we'll be thinking of your family. We'll be thinking about your husband and your kids because no one deserves that. And especially during this time period. I really appreciate it. Hasn't even been a year. And no, I, you're profoundly kind. And thank you so much for having me. Thank you. A hundred percent. Thank you. Qualcast Nation. We got real with Monica Gandhi. She is spectacular, special, authentic, kept it real, man. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube at Quadcast. Want to leave any comments, leave them at Quadcast99 at gmail.com. Leave a five-star rating or review on wherever you listen to podcasts. This helps with the visibility of our show because you know, you know we're trying to change that boogie, trying to transform healthcare for realsies. Guys, thanks so much for supporting the show. Thanks for listening, and we'll connect again real soon. Peace.